for this year is going to be um, centered around habits for spiritual growth. And I know some of you may be thinking, didn't we just discuss something similar to this at the women's retreat last spring? And the answer is why, yes, we did. Um, Jennifer Huslin from our central church, she spent some time encouraging us to repent, rejoice, repeat, embracing the rhythms of the Christian life. And just a little plug here, if you didn't get to join us last spring, her talks are actually available on our website, and I would highly encourage you to take the time to listen. You will be blessed. But it seems like we talk a lot about habits and rhythms of the Christian life. Now, why is that? Well, simply because the Bible does. I've read it described being this way, that while the Bible does not specifically speak of habit as such, much is still said about the meaning of the word. It's a thing done often, a repeated practice, and hence, usually done easily. It's an act that is acquired and has become automatic. We all have habits, whether good or bad. Even newborns may come into this world already sucking their thumbs. However, for the Christian, the whole of our lives is of one of being transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12:2. So this implies exchanging old, bad habits for new, good ones in order to please the Lord. For instance, do all things without grumbling and complaining, Philippians 2.14, may demand a new habit on our part. So it is the putting off of our old nature and the putting on of the new nature we are given when we are born spiritually into God's family. So habits are a really important part of our Christian walk and our spiritual growth. And they'll never stop being applicable to us no matter what season or stage of life we're in. Whether you're single or married, younger or older, rich or poor. You may have heard of this famous quote from an old ancient Chinese philosopher, Lao Tao. It goes like this, watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. Now, while this quote is not scriptural, when we view it from a Christian perspective, we still see that it's applicable to us. Because as Christians, we understand that our thoughts and our actions and our habits are all interconnected. They're still closely linked. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we are told to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So to obey Christ requires action, which comes from cultivating habits that ultimately begin with our very thoughts. So our habits, our repeated practices, well, they matter because they produce things in us that ultimately flow from us. They grow and shape us over time. So they're vital to talk about. And these Ladies of Grace Nights, well, they're a part of the way that we do that. Because these gatherings contribute to building habits and cultivating rhythms in our own lives, both personally and collectively, as we are a local church community. Well, how so exactly? I wanna look at two different things of what these nights aren't and what these nights are. So what these nights are not. They're not just meant to be a mom's or a lady's night out because you deserve some you time. They're not meant to draw you in as a means of escape 
or just a way to turn your brain off and listen to some mindless talk. They're not meant for you to come and just have an individual experience for your own pleasure. Now, don't hear me saying that time for yourself or mom's or ladies' nights out or pleasure or entertainment are in and of themselves wrong or sinful. That's not what I'm saying, but that's just not what these nights are about. So they, what are these nights about then? Well, they're meant to draw you in as a means to engage, to tune in and turn your brains on for us to have a collective and a shared experience as we all sing the same songs, listen to testimonies, hear the same message, pray and fellowship together. These nights are ultimately a means to provide time and space for us to aim our hearts towards God and off of ourselves. They're another opportunity for us to practice the one another's of the Bible. Love one another, John 13, 34. Build up one another, Romans 14, 19. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above ourselves, Romans 12, 10. They're a way for us to pursue relationship with each other because Jesus first pursued us. They're a part of the way that we can help to live out the mission statement of GCF, to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. And as we launched into a new season, we felt it was important to take time to talk about this and make these distinctions because we're still a relatively new church plant here. We're a group still getting to know each other in a lot of ways. We come from different paths and church backgrounds and experiences. It's important to talk about the foundation and the aim of why we even have these nights. Now, I do recognize that for some of you, it's really easy to come to things like this. While for some of you, it's hard being here. It's a challenge to be in a setting like this with other women. And I'm not just talking about the difference between being an extrovert and being an introvert. Most of you who know me would probably think that these kind of things are really easy for me. But there have been times and seasons in my life that it's been really, really hard. When I first started coming to GCF about seven years ago, I was in a season of overwhelming insecurity. And God was also bringing a lot of my sin to the forefront, and a lot of conviction came along with that. And there were many times that I sat around a table just like this, battling myself, battling my thoughts, my convictions, my justifications, but God was still faithful in that season, and he used it for my good and to grow me. Now, not in the course of one night, mind you. We're not trying to overemphasize the importance of these nights. Like, every single time you're going to have an aha moment, and it's these amazingly deep connections. But these nights did serve to contribute to the ongoing work of shaping and forming and sanctifying me. They played a part. So whichever place you find yourself in tonight, whatever season or battle, we just want to say that you are welcome here. And we believe that the Lord will ultimately be the one to minister to you exactly where you're at and in the ways that only he can. And we really do thank you for taking the time to be here. So ultimately, all the different elements of our time together, worship, testimony, prayer, scripture, fellowship, they're aimed to help us grow in building godly habits or disciplines that help us to grow spiritually, both personally and collectively. 
I don't know if you caught that word I used alongside habits there, discipline. I know that's a four-letter word to a lot of people, but you cannot talk about habits for spiritual growth without talking about spiritual disciplines. So what are spiritual disciplines? Well, Donald Whitney, author of the classical book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, describes them this way. Disciplines are not attitudes. Disciplines are practices. Spiritual disciplines are things you do. They are not character qualities. They are not graces. They are not fruit of the spirit. They are things you do. Strictly speaking, joy is not a spiritual discipline. That is the fruit or the result of discipline done rightly. So it's that distinction between doing and being, and the spiritual disciplines are about doing. You can do them as a Pharisee, you can do them wrongly motivated, but rightly motivated, they are things that we are to do in order to be like Jesus, to be with Jesus. Donald Whitney goes on to say that the spiritual disciplines are those practices found in scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're habits of devotion, habits of experiential Christianity that have been practiced by God's people since biblical times. They're such as reading the Bible, prayer, worship, serving, stewardship, sharing your testimonies, evangelism, fellowship, fasting. In her book, Disciplines of a Godly Woman, Barbara Hughes says this, Let's face it, many of us think of spiritual discipline in terms of living the letter of the law or a series of draconian rules that no one could possibly live up to. Such legalism seems to us a path to frustration and spiritual death. But true discipline is a far cry from legalism. Thank God. The difference lies in motivation. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God. The disciplined heart says, I will do this because I love God and want to please him. The true heart of discipline is relationship. It's a relationship with God. So if you're one of those who hears the words discipline and has immediate kind of reaction, or you instantly start thinking of all the ways that you're falling short or you're not measuring up, Let me encourage you to first start by asking the Lord to help you to exchange the I have to mindset for an I get to one. That he would give you a rightly motivated desire to grow. That he would ultimately help you to view spiritual disciplines as spiritual privileges that you get to do so that we can be transformed to be like Jesus, not to keep a good standing with God. And to remember that for those who belong to Jesus Christ, we are never alone. We have been given the Holy Spirit. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 14, 16 through 17. And that is what we'll be focusing on this season together looking at some of the habits or disciplines that we practice together on these nights. And while there are more than these that we could cover, this year we're going to focus on three. The importance of sharing your testimonies, prayer, and the word of God as habits that will help us to grow in our personal and collective walk with Jesus. 
We're not gonna be approaching these habits from a fix-it perspective. Rather, we hope that these talks about habits and spiritual disciplines will encourage you wherever you are. So next month, in place of just one speaker giving a talk, we are gonna have a few women share their testimonies with us. And I recognize that sharing your testimony may not be considered by some as a classical example of a spiritual discipline, but we hope you'll start seeing it as an important discipline to grow in by looking at it as the repeated practice of testifying to your experience with Christ, a repeated practice that is fruitful for growth in Christ-likeness. And you don't need to wait until you're asked to share your testimony at a night like this or at home group before you can start thinking about this or wishing after the fact that you had thought more about your answer when your non-Christian friend, neighbor, coworker, that mom on your kid's sports team asks you about your relationship with Jesus. Write one down now. Think and pray about how God has worked in your life so that you can always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you, 1 Peter 3.15. And it's also a way to encourage your sisters and your brothers in Christ in pointing to how God has worked and is working in your life, which ultimately will encourage your own heart as well as you reflect on and remember the grace and the mercy and the kindness of our Lord. Hearing each other's testimonies reminds us that God saves all types of people from all types of situations and circumstances and to never lose hope for those people that we're praying for. I mean, thanks be to God for that. While there is no specific formula for sharing your testimony, the aim, the intention, is to testify to the work of God's saving grace and his transforming grace in your life. How did God save you? And how have you seen him to continue to transform you since then? Because remember, when God saves us, he gives us a new heart, but it's not yet a perfect heart. So there will always be transformation happening until Jesus comes back or calls us home. So sharing our testimonies, it humbles us as we recall how Jesus is the hero of our story, not us. And we allow ourselves to be vulnerable that we trust that God will use it for our good and his glory. Well, four years ago, I was asked to share my testimony at a night much like this. And in preparation for tonight, I reread that and it was such an encouragement to my soul as I reflected on all that God has done in my life and has continued to do since then. And in the spirit of vulnerability, I thought I'd go first this year in sharing. So here's a little bit of my story. I was born and raised in sunny Orange County, California, from a middle-class family in a nice neighborhood. I was the youngest of three daughters I was the precocious, chubby-cheeked, blonde-haired little girl who loved running around our church in my frilly-twirly little dresses, which is where I earned the nickname White Meat. The story goes something like this. I was two years old, and I guess that I'd always be flipping up my dress and showing my tummy, ever the lady I was, apparently. And one day, someone said that, like, Kelly, show us your White Meat. And I flipped up my dress and showed them my tummy. And I can promise you now, someone would probably get arrested for that, but I, it was very innocent. <laughs> well, the nickname stuck, though, for a really long time. I even got this statue of a girl flipping up her dress to show her tummy from our pastor at my high school graduation party. 
And to this day, it still sits on my nightstand. And for many, many years, that image of myself somehow got stuck in my head. The girl I thought I needed to be, or how I thought others saw me. The precocious, got it all together, happy-go-lucky girl. I remember the first time I felt the disconnect between her and myself. It was the night my parents sat me and my sisters down to tell us that daddy has a problem and he needs to go away to get some help. My dad would continue to battle his drug and alcohol addictions for seven more years after that. But during that time period from about second grade until the beginning of my freshman year, I remember not feeling on the inside how my life looked to others on the outside. We still continue to go to church regularly. I played sports, excelled at school. I was even baptized in the fourth grade. I believed in God, but there was no real personal relationship or any kind of internal change. By the time high school started, my dad was finally home. After several rehab attempts, coming and going from the home too many times to count, he realized that he was about to lose his family for good. And by God's grace, he quit cold turkey. And he has stayed sober and been my loving daddy ever since. But the damage that had been done through all those years didn't just end right along with him getting sober. As an adult now, I know my parents were doing the best job that they could. They still had so much work to do in repairing their marriage, but they also sort of kind of turned a blind eye to me and my sisters during that time. I mean, from the outside, I still looked pretty good. I upheld the white meat image. I went to church, attended youth group, participated in school activities, got good grades, all on the inside, though, well, my heart remained unchanged, and I lived a completely worldly lifestyle. At times, I would wrestle with the partying and the activities I was getting into because morally, I knew that's not what my parents would want or how they raised me. But there was no conviction of sin, no, no feeling to repent. It was just complete moralism. Well, this worldly lifestyle continued and exponentially grew during my college years. I had my first serious boyfriend my sophomore year of college. We met at a party, drinking, and actually one of the things that attracted me to him was his profession of being a Christian, which at the time, I would have said I was too, and his wanting to stay pure until marriage, again, like I said I wanted to at that time. But here again was the evidence of my struggle with morality that I was raised with versus a true heart change because less than six months into our relationship, we broke that promise to each other. And eight months later, he broke up with me for another girl. This was one of the hardest times in my young adult life. By sleeping with him, I had married him in my mind. And when he left me, I didn't know what to do. I still remember that white meat image haunting me during those days. I had to still keep it together on the outside, still get good grades, still excel, still be the life of the party. While on the inside, I was just a complete depressed mess who started looking for love and self-worth in all of the wrong places. By the time I graduated college, I hadn't regularly attended church or opened my Bible in years. I was still living in San Diego, where I had gone to school, when my oldest sister, who was married with one kiddo at the time, announced to my parents that they were thinking of moving out of state because it was so stinking expensive to live in Orange County. Well, of course, my parents could imagine their lives without their only granddaughter. And so after some research and scouting trips, a move to Spokane, Washington became a reality. This is the time in my life 
where I see God start to draw me to himself. You see, I was a really big family person, and I couldn't imagine being that far away from them. And I was pretty much just existing at this point. Without, without school and classes as my goal and my guide, I just kept waiting tables. I was partying and just figuring out what my big girl job should be. So I figured I could stay in SoCal and continue living the life I had been, or I could try a change and see what happened. So in September of 2004, I officially became a Spokenite. I was a college grad back living at home with my parents. No job, no friends. I was a total catch. Without my old and familiar distractions, though, I began to regularly attend church with my family. But this time, something was different. I actually felt a desire to want to go. And when I was there, I actually wanted to pay attention. Late at night when I was alone in my room, feeling sad and confused and just untethered, I started to cry out to God. I began reading through a copy of A Purpose Driven Life that someone had given to me. I read the accompanying scriptures. I was journaling. I started going to a, a small uh, young adults ladies group. My heart had been changed, and with it, new desires came. I made a vow to only date a Christian man from then on and to not have sex before marriage ever again. Shortly after I got my first big girl job, I started to make friends with my coworkers. And it wasn't long after that that one of them, after uh, we had been at her bridal shower, they invited me to the after party. I distinctly remember thinking to myself as I stood in the host's kitchen as they were awaiting my reply, Kelly, if you go out with them tonight, you're going to go right back into the life that you just left and you don't want anymore. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I said no, and I went home to be with my family instead. A couple months after that, I walked into church like any other Sunday, but that day I spotted a new, young, cute guy with tattooed arms and spiky blonde hair. He's back there. <laughs> Not the bearded, flannel-clad Pacific Northwesterner I had conjured up for myself in my mind. He was also from Southern California, fresh out of his time in the Navy, newly saved and on fire for the Lord. He was another example of God's grace to me when I didn't deserve it. A man who would leave me and love me so well after I had strayed elsewhere for so many years. We were engaged five months after that, and by God's grace, we were able to honor our commitment of abstaining before we were married. And we just celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary last August. But yet the first eight to 10 years as a believer, that white meat image or expectant expectation, it would continue to haunt me. And to my surprise, it didn't just go away because I was living on the straight and narrow now. That idea of who I thought I should be and what others expected of me was still there. I had unintentionally been on the hamster wheel of the gospel of works for years, and I did not know how to get off. It was about eight years ago now that God started doing a new thing in mine and Dave's lives. He was beginning to lead us away from the only church family we had ever known as a married couple. And honestly, it was a straining and a difficult time in our marriage. But by God's grace and the patient love of my husband, we were led here to GCF. And right from the beginning, I knew that there was something different and why my husband had fought so hard to bring us here. Week after week, we were washed in the word and pointed to the true gospel. 
I began to learn what it meant to preach the gospel to, gospel to myself, and I started to realize the toil the years of striving and workspace living had had on me and our marriage. I was no more saved at GCF than I was at our previous church, but my walk with the Lord was starting to look completely different. This little statue still sits on my nightstand, but she no longer makes me think of the impossibly perfect standards I can never live up to or fills me with guilt and shame. Instead, she now reminds me of the goodness and the mercy and the kindness and the patience of a good, good father and that he is not finished with me yet. And by God's grace, he's not finished with you yet either or your family, your marriage, your wayward child, that diagnosis, I know it could be really easy to leave here tonight feeling like I still have so far to go, so much work to do. But this is a great opportunity for us to collectively preach the gospel to ourselves before we head out. To remember that our true motivation to grow in Christ-likeness is not really so much about our doing as it is our being, being like Jesus. Disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 6. For every person here who has been born again, this is our hope and our promise. And we confess together that this is not an easy thing to do. In fact, it's impossible in our own strength. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. So let's close the night by preaching the gospel to ourselves through song. And as we sing these gospel truths, let them both be our proclamation and our promise.